The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Caleb Benjamin, intern at Lawfare, with an episode of Rational Security for November 19th, 2023. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, a podcast hosted by Scott R. Anderson, Quinta Jurassic, and Alan Rosenstein, in which they cover the week's big national security news stories. Today's episode is entitled The Talking Turkey Edition. In the episode, Anderson and Jurassic sat down with Tyler McBride to discuss how Israel may handle a post-Hamas Gaza. New York City Mayor Eric Adams being investigated for accepting donations from Turkish organizations and then lobbying for the early opening of a Turkish consulate, a lawsuit over the U.S. government's engagement with social media interfering with the FBI, and more. This is Rational Security. Hey there, RATSEC listeners. Scott R. Anderson, one of your loyal co-hosts here. Just want to let you know at the top of this week's episode that we are doing something unprecedented next week something we have never done before. We're taking a week off for Thanksgiving. So you won't hear from us in next week in this feed, but stay tuned for the following week as we get to catch up on all the holiday national security news. Until then, enjoy this week's episode. Tyler, while you are absconding to New York City, there has been a crime afoot here at the Brookings Institution. Yes, we've had a, a rash of uh, salad thefts. From the, our sweet green outpost, which at is least the most one bougie thing I could thief. possibly say. There's at least one salad thief involved, possibly a team. <laughs> Judging from the number of salads that are missing, there could be a whole a whole squad involved. Or it could be an original thief and then uh, copycat crimes. Oh, that does that's happen. Right. That does happen. Have you been victims, either of you? I have had two salads stolen. I have had, I think, two as well over the last few weeks. Although I just got mine early now, so I can, you know, I'm confident I got my salad today. <laughs> Scott, Scott waits around the outpost now. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't trust the delivery anymore. You know, I need to, this is, this is what causes people to lose faith in governing institutions. I wasn't, I was staking it out, Tyler. I wasn't lingering. I had, I had my newspaper out where I'd cut holes into Gerald Ford's eyes and when the photo on the front of the newspaper was peeking through, keeping an eye on seeing who was going to come through uh, by the salad station. No perps this time, but. Give me another couple of weeks. And you've, you've been bested, Scott. Indeed. Indeed. This is these wily, wily criminals, but I'll get them yet. And they're damn dog, too. Just, just wait. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am your slightly more husky voice than usual on account of a smile, small head cold co-host, Scott R. Anderson. Thrilled to be here IRL in the IRL studio, despite the public health risk, with one of my other regular co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. 
And we are also thrilled to be joined by one of our regular non-co-hosts, but occasional guest hosts, Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare. Tyler, thank you for joining us. Always good to be back, Quinta and Husky-voiced Scott. <laughs> only I only have you on when I'm Husky-voiced. I don't know why. This is I think this is the third time this has worked out this way, and I'm thrilled. Is it? Me? I like to think. I think so. I think this. I think. I, I think like to think you. this is how you think I I sound, and uh, I don't ever want to change that impression. So I don't show up to the office when you're here in person, and when it's remote, I'm just only doing husky. That's just how we do. Well, we are thrilled to have you here for what we are calling in honor of both the forthcoming holiday and one of our stories this week, the Talking Turkey edition of Rational Security, because there have been some turkeys afoot in a number of regards, including at least one at issue in your fine city of New York, Tyler, and we're excited to talk it over with you. For our first topic today, the day after... As the war in Gaza enters a new phase, discussions are increasingly shifting to focus on how Israel will handle a post-Hamas Gaza Strip and what long-term impact the conflict will have on the West Bank. How is a day after this war coming into focus? Topic two, not just America's mayor. New York City Mayor Eric Adams is being investigated for accepting donations from a Turkish foundation and other organizations with ties to Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan just before lobbying for the early opening of a Turkish consulate in the city. Has Adams done anything wrong? What else could this investigation be looking into? And topic three, election interference, interference, interference. A lawsuit over the U.S. government's engagement with social media is interfering with the FBI's efforts to interfere with those hoping to interfere in our elections, including the upcoming presidential race in 2024. What threats does this chilling effect present? How should the Biden administration be responding? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So as we record, Israel is in the midst of uh, what I believe the IDF has called a targeted operation on the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza. We're going to stay away from the breaking news um, and focus on two different aspects of the ongoing conflict. Uh, One is increasing violence in the West Bank. There's been a great deal of reporting about settler violence in the West Bank against Palestinian communities. So the Washington Post had a good overview um, as of November 9th that the United Nations had recorded 222 settler attacks against Palestinians. Eight people were killed, including a child. 64 Palestinians were injured. And according to the UN, over a thousand Palestinians have been displaced, including some communities that have basically been entirely done away with because people are essentially chased out of their homes by Israeli settlers. So that's that's one prong. We also wanted to talk about uh, some comments made by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has indicated that Israel will be in control of Gaza after the end of this operation, saying, and I quote, Gaza has to be demilitarized and Gaza has to be de-radicalized. I think so far we haven't seen any Palestinian force, including the Palestinian Authority, that is able to do that. Uh, He then went on to say that overall military responsibility, that's a quote, um, would be Israel's in Gaza after the war. What's particularly notable about this is that it conflicts with comments made by U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, um, who had said that following this war that Gaza should be governed by the Palestinian Authority, um, which of course governs Palestinians uh, in the West Bank. So these are two somewhat separate, but also quite interrelated in, in another sense issues. 
Scott, let me start with you on the Gaza issue. What did you make of Netanyahu's comments? And maybe if you could help kind of situate them in the history of Gaza and in the sort of international legal implications here. Sure. And I'll say I think there's actually less clear contradiction between the Blinken point and the Netanyahu point. It's really a matter of emphasis. You know, Netanyahu is essentially saying, as I understand it, is that security responsibility for Gaza is going to have to be primarily Israeli moving forward. That is not actually that big a departure from what Gaza has been for most of the last 15 years, not to mention prior to that, but at least since the Israeli withdrawal. You know, Gaza has been under substantial blockade. Israel has a very strong security border, controls what gets in and out on security grounds, obviously has launched a number of military operations in Gaza. So it's not clear what exactly that means, right? Um, it could mean more of an occupation, which would put it more in tension with Lincoln statements, which would be Israeli troops patrolling the streets or, uh, you know, actually trying to exercise gate checks and things like that throughout the city and throughout the, the broader Gaza Strip. I kind of suspect it will not be that. I suspect that maybe they will, uh, you know, try and hold parts of particularly the northern Gaza Strip near closest to Israeli settlements or Israeli communities, I should say, not not settlements uh, outside the Gaza Strip. I think it could also uh, be kind of a continuation of the status quo, which is that there he's saying, well, we're not going to cede security responsibility to the Palestinians for Gaza. Israel never really has, nor has it really done so meaningfully for the West Bank. Palestinian Authority plays a very strong role in policing and internal security, but external security and really any sort of meaningful sort of military capability is something that's not been on the table for the West Bank or the Palestinian Authority at any point moving forward. Um, Meanwhile, Blinken really is emphasizing like no new occupation. What do they consider an occupation? Um, I mean, there's this very lively debate as to whether Israel actually has been occupying Gaza for the last 15, 16, 17 years. You know, I think there's a very persuasive case to be made that it effectively has, even though it hasn't been patrolling the streets and has allowed for a substantial element of self-government. But it has been controlling ingress and egress and a sort of other sovereign characteristics of the territory. But the, where is the line for what we mean by occupation in that context? I don't think that they're hinging this on the international law definition. Um, and if you're not hinging on that, then it becomes a fairly gray category to say, well, is this occupation? Is this not? What does role do different actors play? The bigger question is really on self-governing and, and governance at all, like who should be governing the Gaza Strip. Um, you know, the the United Biden administration seems to be pretty strongly weighing in for essentially the Palestinian Authority, I suspect, maybe some sort of post-PA institution because the PA has lots of institutional frailties and issues of its own. Um, but some sort of pan-Palestinian governance organization um, that covers both the West Bank and Gaza. And notably, the Biden administration, and particularly Blinken in statements to State Department personnel internally, has really doubled down. That's been reported now publicly, has reportedly doubled down on the idea of like, no, we need to start making progress towards a two-state solution in the short term, in the near term. Doesn't need to wait for the end of this conflict. And so this could be seen as part of that. The problem is it's just not clear that that's actually a departure, how that departs from what the status quo was before this crisis and how this actually moves things in any sort of productive direction. Um, And those are the big questions that are hanging out there for the Biden administration, certainly, and to a substantial extent for Bibi. You know, the current situation around Gaza and the West Bank is a product of Bibi Netanyahu and his governments over the last two decades, two decades plus, not exclusively, but substantially, (laughs) like overwhelmingly substantially. And it's not clear to me he's actually proposing that much of a change from the same strategy that he's been pursuing which is essentially just trying to maintain the security conditions, keep Palestinians kind of cabined in a certain area where they can't threaten us. And the October 7th massacre, you know, was a demonstration of the 
potential frailties of that position, but the fact that you will have shortcomings in your security situation and that when you have a, a hostile population that you've antagonized very close to you, those kind of really, really tragic and awful consequences. So, you know, w- where do you go from there? And, and I don't hear a new vision, frankly, coming from the United States or from Israel on, on either front. Yeah, I think, uh, Scott, to your point of self-governance, I think one thing I've been thinking about is that even if Israel is able to achieve its stated goal of eradicating Hamas, which, as I think many people have pointed out, it's not entirely clear that that's even a viable goal, uh, especially one to be achieved militarily uh, at all. But even if they do uh, achieve that goal, then there will clearly be a vacuum. And, and if not the Palestinian Authority, then who is left as the organized as an organized institution to fill that vacuum. And it's not clear that it would be a, a better actor than, than Hamas for the Netanyahu government. Um, so I think, I think that's why there's a lot of criticism out there of, of Netanyahu's lack of plan. The other uh, aspect I wanted to, to highlight is what this is highlighting about the U.S.-Israeli relationship, this tension, as you've pointed out, between what Netanyahu is saying and what Blinken is, is saying, I think just is further evidence that the U.S. has less of an um, influence on, on what Netanyahu does than, than previously thought. There have maybe been some parts of the war where the U.S. has been able to have some influence in terms of turning the water back on in Gaza, for example, but this seems to be at the margins. So, so I'm curious, you know, with, with all of the, the, the weapons, the arms that, that the U.S. is sending to Israel and other forms of support, like what, what the U.S. is getting in return is unclear. I also, Scott, I'm, I'm curious for your thoughts on that, but just to, to fold in the West Bank issue as well, because I think this is a good opportunity to kind of tie them together. The White House uh, has reportedly been putting pressure on the Netanyahu government to uh, itself put pressure on settlers to stop these violent attacks on Palestinians in the West Bank. It's not clear to me how much of a difference that has made, in part because the a significant portion of the Israeli government is currently made up of people who not only – you know, it's not that they don't care about those attacks. It's that they think that those attacks are great and there should be more of them. Um, and so I think that also maybe points to how the kind of domestic political calculations that Netanyahu is making might limit U.S. influence. Yeah, those are all really good questions. I mean, I, I do think it's clear that that there is some influence the Biden administration has around tactics, uh, perhaps the best way to think about small scale things. So, look, we've seen the Israeli government genuinely – modulate its tack in Gaza in the last few weeks, and it appears to correlate with increasing pressure from the Biden administration. Maybe they're not directly tied to each other, but my guess is that they probably are. Um, so we've seen more openness to humanitarian corridors, to pauses in hostilities to allow people to evacuate, more sensitivity to uh, you know certain types of targets, particularly like health centers, um, even though Al-Shifa and uh, Al-Quds and other major hospital networks in Gaza are very openly accused by the Israelis of being major hubs of Hamas communications and leadership hubs hiding underneath them in tunnels or otherwise kind of embedded within them. The Israelis have not directly targeted them with, you know, the sorts of airstrikes we've seen against similar centers in the way that they have been willing to do in other spots. Uh, We've seen a a ground operation taking place currently, um, I think, as we're recording uh, against Al-Shifa Hospital. Um, That is a very much more risky type of operation for Israeli troops, obviously, uh, because you are going to be in tunnels and in hospitals with a lot of civilians around who, who may or may not be friendly, may see you as a threat and be scared of you, um, are in dire situations themselves. It, it is a really difficult situation, but the Israeli government is opting to go that route. 
it doesn't mean there aren't going to be civilian casualties. There almost certainly will be in substantial number. Um, it's going to be a truly, truly horrific vision, but it is one that comes with cost for the Israeli government. And and I think it's a sign that there are pressure points that are having some success. Are they having the success at the scale that people think is necessary to really curb the humanitarian situation? No, they're not. And it's not clear to me how feasible that would be unless you were to seriously change the tempo of the Israeli military operation. And I don't know how willing the Biden administration is to push against that. That's the big question, right? They're not willing to to rule out that Israel has a legitimate military objective that they're pursuing in eliminating Hamas um, or at least severely degrading Hamas. But where the the trade-off is, where they say, hey, guys, like your window is closed on this. You know, you you need to wind this up. Too many civilian deaths, too much much death and destruction. That's the trade-off. And it's a hard line to draw. I do think the Biden administration, the thing it hasn't done is really pull out the big points of leverage, whether it's arms sales, whether it's various types of security assistance coordination. And I think the Biden administration feels substantially penned in on those. Yes, legally, there are ways for the president to stop those flows. It is, I think they suspect a political third rail that they are unable or unwilling to touch because those forms of support have really substantial support in Congress, bipartisan support from both parties. Congress, while there is increasing voices for things like a ceasefire, particularly among Democrats, I think the the strongest weight is still strongly backing Israel and a lot of its military operations in Congress um, across both parties. Uh, And I don't think the Biden administration thinks that there are ways that they can cut that off and use that as hard leverage very easily that don't come at an immense political cost heading into an election year. And so that is that is the reason we don't see them deployed um, that way, I suspect. Maybe that changes. You know, when you have a few weeks or months where you have stories out there talking about how you're pressuring the Israelis, talking about how you're trying to get the new things, and you can point to say, yeah, they're doing these small things, but our bigger demands are being ignored, our bigger requirements aren't being respected, then maybe you can build the political case for saying, and now we really actually have to start playing hardball with Israelis, or at least with Netanyahu, um, who I think you can villainize a lot more effectively. Um, the other point I would make here is the Biden administration, again, its strategy has always been to have a very strong public embrace of Israel while to channel criticism kind of behind the scenes. Um, that's a reaction to the Obama administration that had almost the invert policy and that had a very bad relationship with Israel um, that in a lot of ways contributed to Israel's and particularly Netanyahu's embrace of Trump during the Trump administration. But there may be limits to this new tack as well. I think they've succeeded in that the Biden administration in the United States has a lot of credibility with the Israeli public and that allows them to put some more pressure on Netanyahu indirectly. It allows that soft pressure to have a little more weight. But again, there are probably limits to that. And so maybe, you know, you're, you're building the case where you can use harder pressure and maybe even the Israelis will say, hey, Bibi, you, you got to step out of line. But the, I think the idea, the political logic is that you have to build the case for that. It's something you have to build legitimacy for over time. And the sad truth is that in that window, a lot more civilians are dying. And it's, it's really tragic uh, trade-offs. I think going back to your point, Scott, that some of what Netanyahu's comments are more reflective, a bit closer to the status quo of the past 15, 20 years uh, in Gaza. I'm curious to what extent you feel like the the uptick in violence in the West Bank also is is fairly close to to the status quo of the past 15, 20 years. It seems like, a, perhaps from the outside, an opportunistic uptick in violence, but it, it seems clearly part of a, a longer trajectory. So I, I'm curious to what extent you think what's happening in the West Bank is is us unprecedented or, or a break from the past or, or more of a continuation. It's a great question. Um, I think you're 100% right. Similar acts have been happening for certainly the last decade or two, really much longer. Um, they're happening at a degree of aggressiveness, at a tempo and a pace that I think is a lot stronger. Um, I did a great podcast with our, our colleague, Heyman Han, 
um, hosted with Dan Byman uh, and Gleith Mary maybe two weeks ago on the West Bank. I think, that, I think it still captures more or less the situation as it currently stands, which is that, you know, these are things we've seen settlers do for the last few years. They've been very aggressively and forward in part because they are getting a little bit of a, a tacit, if not express, green light from Israeli authorities saying you can kind of get away with some of these things. Um, and they're in some ways very openly. You know, there's a really telling interview, I think, in The New Yorker with a, a prominent Israeli settler making the point saying, like, expressly, yeah, the international community doesn't want us to undermine the ability to give this land back to the Palestinians at some point. That's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to create facts on the ground by building communities, building settlements that will be too hard to uproot. And we know that this is the way that we get to keep more of this land. And that's an effort that's being advanced now uh, in the same ways that's been being advanced the last few decades, but at a faster pace because there's a window of opportunity I think people see uh, as a result of the October 7th attacks. That's a pretty terrible circumstance. I do think eventually you're going to see international pressure push back on the Israelis. But again, it's it's all about timing and and how far you can move in. And the fact that they see this window is part of the reason you see this aggressiveness because they know it's one that's going to close eventually. Yeah, I mean, to to that, I think that the what I found really striking about the Washington Post reporting um, is that so it, it does indicate that by some metrics, this is sort of this is an increase in intensity and pace of settler attacks and also says that, you know, among Palestinians, and I'll just quote from the article here, the breadth and intensity of the violence has revived memories of the Nakba. Um, so that is the Arabic for catastrophe. It's during the 1948 Arab-Israeli war when Palestinians uh, left their homes. Um, that's a pretty intense comparison to make um, emotionally, culturally, historically, and I think speaks to why this is such a tangle um, to to work through and why, at least in my view, I mean, it is really paramount that the Israeli government stop these attacks and also why they don't want to, yeah. right? Yeah, I think, yeah. Quinta, to that point, one difference I think that the the latest outbreak of, of war has, has really hi- highlighted is I think the illusion that the settlers – and and the Netanyahu government are completely separate from each other has has been shattered in many ways. Um, there have been reports of uh, I think you know at least the military providing arms to settlers, but I think that that this has really um, shed light on on this, this sort of longstanding tacit approval at least or pseudo encouragement maybe uh, between the Netanyahu government and and, and the, the West Bank settlers. Yeah, those are so. I believe those are weapons that are purchased by Itamar Ben Gavir, who's the national security minister. Yeah, I think that's right. Although I, I also think it's important that we contextualize kind of reports like this a little bit. You know, th- this conflict is plagued by people shaping narratives around anecdotal events and casting those on much broader populations or institutions or practices. You know, I'm, I'll take this as an example. I'm not sure this is the best one, but I, but I, but I think it's a good one. This this idea about the Israeli government facilitating uh, civil activity, which I do believe is accurately describes a lot of incidents happening between certain, particularly Israeli agencies and the settlers now. But you will hear a narrative saying this has always been what the Israeli government has done. That's actually not always historically true. Like there have been periods where the Israeli government has actually pushed back in small ways on settlement activities. It's I, I, I not in a lot of the ways a lot of people think they should, or the international community has called for at various times through the UN Security Council, but in a substantial ways, uh, you know, uh, the withdrawal from Gaza actually being one of the most prominent examples, right? Like there were Israeli settlements that were forcibly evacuated at gunpoint of Israeli citizens to facilitate that withdrawal as, as poorly as it has, has looks in hindsight. I only note that to say that, you know, you have a lot of 
narratives floating around, whether it is people pointing towards activities of Hamas being characteristic of Palestinians generally, or the Palestinian independence movement, or people attributing sometimes the actions of particular factions within Israel with Israelis as a whole, or the Israeli government as a whole. And I think we need to bear in mind the the issue with both this conflict, one of the reasons it makes it so complicated is that there are not two parties. Each of these, what we perceive as two parties, themselves have dozens of factions within them that are often negotiating and sometimes contesting with each other and engaging things independent and trying to force and manipulate and maneuver each other. Clearly, that is what Hamas was trying to do on October 7th to some extent, is play both an inter-Palestinian game and a Palestinian-Israeli game, and frankly, play a little bit of an Israeli-Israeli game in terms of who, which factions they're playing off each other and what sort of reactions they're going to trigger. These sorts of multi-layer games, it's, it, I just don't, I want to push back against those sort of two broad narratives saying, like, this is something we can generalize to too broad a category. Not that you were trying to do that, but that's, an, that's a temptation in this sort of conflict. And we see people doing that all the time. And it's a really dangerous practice. I wanted to make one more point, and Scott, feel free to push back if I'm overstating uh, the, the potency of international law here. Uh, but I think that uh, in terms of the West Bank settlements, this is an area, as opposed to, to Gaza, where there may be a bit of a more heightened deterrence effect of international law. I wrote a, a piece in Lawfare um, sort of giving a status update of the ICC investigation into the Palestine situation. And one of my questions was whether or not such an investigation could have any sort of deterrence effect on um, war crimes or, or other crimes against humanity from occurring uh, just by its existence. The people I spoke to mostly uh, were not so optimistic about that prospect. Um, I think the deterrence effect of, of ICC investigations is is ex- extremely debatable. But one person did point to a, a situation in 2018 when the Israeli government had plans and was all set to um, demolish a Bedouin village in the West Bank. And then prosecutor Fatou Ben Souda issued a warning saying that if if you if you follow through with this plan, that would constitute a war crime. The the village destruction did not was not carried out. Um, obviously, it's, it's um, difficult to, to prove causation there. But I think the situation is, is different enough from Gaza that there, there may be some ability for deterrence in, in international law. Possibly. I mean, I, I, it's not international law so much as institutional pushbacks, I think, um, because the international law status of West Bank, I think a lot of people think is actually pretty clear in part because the UN Security Council has very clearly issued edicts on it. Um, but the Israelis contest it. Americans are fuzzy on it. Uh, and that is often enough to fuzz the practical effect of the international legal picture in terms of law, territory, apl- applicable legal regime, things like that. Again, I don't necessarily agree with those fuzzier pictures, uh, but that's the rea- the political reality. The real question is institutional pushback. Like the ICC has that sort of institutional hammer. It's a small hammer. I think it's one Israelis aren't terribly afraid of, but it can have certain impacts. And I think particularly in that case, it was a targeted high-profile incident, right? There are other hammers at play here, you know, you could see economic sanctions imposed against settlers that sometimes people have proposed and talked about at some point in the 1990s, right? Uh, we have actually had like far right-wing uh, Israeli Jewish terrorist groups like the Kahan group uh, like designated as terrorist groups in the United States and subject to sanctions the same way that Hamas or Al-Qaeda and other groups are. You know, we could see – we see embargoes and boycotts and other things like that taking place, whether it's the Arab League boycott, which has been kind of a failure at this point but exists for decades and decades – in opposition to the United States and a lot of other governments, whether you see, you know, European hesitance to um, allow imports from the settlements or efforts to label settlement sort of imports, like all these things are real tools to break out there. And that's that. And they do have an impact like on the economic viability of these communities, 
on the appeal of these communities, um, on Israel's willingness to, to abide by them. And that's why there's such a strong pushback uh, and an effort to say, like, no, these are not wrong, whether it's lumping them in with things that are anti-Semitic, of which there are very real things in the world. But I think there is, is ways you can have uh, anti-settlement laws that are not anti-Semitic. <laughs> um, and, and I think a lot of European laws probably fit in that zone. Whether it is, uh, you know, lots of different measures or cutting off military assistance is another like hard lever, right? The problem is the political space to use those hard levers, the willingness to them and and the receptivity. Like the idea is like, is this what's going to make the difference? Um, But I do think like aggressive violent settlement activity is, if anything, the one thing that might push people over the the edge. It may not be Americans. It probably be Europeans first. But that's really before the Gaza conflict where we saw the focus of – you know, actual public policy initiatives meant to put economic pressure on Israel around their practices towards the Palestinians was around boycotts uh, and embargoes around uh, West Bank settlements. Um, and, you know, again, I think that might be a spot where you begin to see those activities. And that's one thing the Israelis have as a weakness that people don't appreciate. Israelis are not – they're a very cosmopolitan international people. Like many, many Israelis have family overseas. They travel overseas. They travel to Europe. They travel to the United States. And when you begin to see policies that impact their ability to do that – um, or that make it awkward to do that, or that uh, impact the, their economic ties that they rely on outside. Um, those are pressure points. I suspect as the window of kind of sympathy and good feeling after October 7th closes and, and drains a little bit and is worn down by the horrible civilian casualties in Gaza, you're going to see an increased focus on those measures from Europeans and others, unless you hear a real vision from the Israelis and their allies saying, here's how we're going to move forward to a better situation than we had before this crisis. And that's just the vision that we haven't heard yet. And uh, speaking of that window, I think it, it should be said that I believe it was uh, former Prime Minister Ehud Barak who said that he believed that that window was two weeks. And that was about a week ago when he said that. Um, so he wasn't very oh, optimistic. There we go. The, the link. Clock is ticking. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 
separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Well, from some Middle Eastern problems happening in the Middle East, let us go to some uh, Middle East problems happening in your own backyard, Tyler. Uh, as we caught wind of an interesting story this week in the national security space, none other than New York City Mayor Eric Adams, who still in the most cowardly of fashions, has refused to take me up on my chili cook-off uh, challenge of two years ago here on Rational Security, is evidently in a little bit of trouble, primarily for taking a, a number of donations, some of which he returned, but many of which he returned only portions of, not all of, very curiously, 
from a number of organizations and individuals that are of Turkish derivation, uh, either of uh, Turkish national, Turkish organizations owned or substantially funded or supported by Turkish individuals, some of whom have ties to the Turkish president Recep Tayyip Erdogan. And then taking some of these funds and then making at least one effort to lobby on behalf of a Turkish consulate that was trying to get permitting to open earlier than expected to line up with a visit by Erdogan. And Adams apparently entered into uh, an effort to get lobby to get that approval in place. Um, so his cell phones have been seized as of the cell phones of his lead fundraiser, I believe. Um, so they're looking at his communications. That's all we've seen so far. No one's actually made any accusations of wrongdoing against them as of yet. We heard these these phones are being looked at. And we're seeing reports about these ties. As as a local New Yorker, a native New Yorker, tell us how you feel about this, what the story, how it's resonating, and what you make of it. Uh, I, I just want to say I hope it's not a mistake to give a New Yorker a microphone and the space to talk about Eric Adams because there is nothing more like catnip to a New Yorker than than Eric Adams gossip. First, I want to say, Quinta, never fear. There's obviously a New Jersey connection here. Well, New Jersey resident Eric Adams. Exactly. Yeah. As with any Eric Adams story, there's an obvious uh, New Jersey nexus. Uh, I just want to uh, highlight my favorite, uh, one of my favorite parts of this predictably uh, bizarre story, if, if it involves Eric Adams. There's a, a, a great um, New York City-focused publication called The City, uh, and they they reached out to, to three of the donors from the Turkin Foundation. And they found that one of them, uh, the foundation treasurer, uh, said that a close friend of his uh, handled the donation and lists this close friend as living in the non-existent city of Staten Island, New Jersey, which um, I loved that, which is just amazing. We do not want Staten Island. (laughs) You can you can keep Staten Island. (laughs) But, uh, you know, New Jersey implications aside, which we can always come back to. I think this story really highlights one of my favorite topics that I think is very undercovered, but is growing in prominence, and that's uh, city and state diplomacy. I think one thing that I want to sort of highlight here is that not all attempts by foreign governments, local or or national governments to make connections with city officials is nefarious. You know, there's there's lots of uh, really positive connections to be made in terms of, um, you know, economic development, pandemic response, climate change uh, coordination, just cultural goodwill. This does not appear, this story does not appear to fit in that uh, category. I think one, uh, you know, one distinction you can make is, you know, whether a, a city seems to be establishing connections with uh, a foreign entity, you know, local government, uh, sort of in a systemic way or uh, in a sort of ad hoc cult of personality way. So I think in the, in the former category, you can look at an example like Phoenix, Arizona has, uh, you know, a decades long efforts to establish ties with Taipei, Taiwan. And that has, you know, occurred across political cycles. Uh, it, has, it has led to economic cooperation. This seems to be quite tied to uh, Eric Adams uh, and his uh, connections with foundations and other um, entities that have uh, Turkish ties uh, back when he was the borough president of Brooklyn, which is a largely ceremonial role, as a lot of the reporting points out. So I think we are uh, right to be skeptical uh, and critical of this this case of, of city and state diplomacy. And I put diplomacy in quotes there. Yeah, I have to say that that was like such a careful and interesting response to something that is ultimately just foundationally completely absurd. <laughs> I'm, I'm on my best behavior. <laughs> yeah, you're on, you're on very good behavior. So I will say, first off, as a D.C. resident who is constantly trying to make the argument that D.C. is not inferior to New York, I will say 
the absurdities of New York mayors far outclass anything that DC has been able to provide since Marion Barry. I was going to say we that's, are a, that's, just, a, that's a yeah, big caveat. We, pull, we pulled into a strong lead as with Marion Barry. Old enough to remember Marion Barry on this podcast, <laughs> that's, that's a strong. But that's since a strong then, caveat. since then, I'm not talking about like whether they're a good mayor. I'm just talking about no, Anthony like, Williams will weird wear bow ties. Totally. I hear you. Yeah. But the, we just, we cannot measure up to this level of just pure insanity. I will say my favorite part about all of this is, well, two favorite parts. First off, the the fundraiser um, for Adams, whose materials were seized by the FBI, is a child. She's like 25. Um, so that that I think is really inspiring that you know, if you believe in yourself, you can do anything um, at any age. And second, that one of the instances that the FBI is reportedly investigating has to do with an incident uh, when Adams was Brooklyn borough president, pressuring city officials to allow uh, Turkey to open and occupy a new consulate building, even though it, it wasn't yet uh, fire safe. Um, and Adams has responded saying that, you know, this was just part of his his work as Brooklyn Borough president. The only problem is that the consulate is in Manhattan, uh, which is I I found amusing. I don't know, Tyler, for as as a New Yorker, does that check out to you? Thank you for asking, Quinta. That does not check out to me. Uh, <laughs> the boroughs are quite different, uh, separated famously by a river. <laughs> Um, there is a river in between. But I think the other uh, the other aspect that maybe throws water on Eric Adams' story there is the timing. Uh, I, I believe he only pushed uh, on the fire department when he became uh, when he won the Democratic uh, primary, which essentially was the the mayoral election. So he he made that request not quite as as uh, Brooklyn Borough President, but as essentially mayor elect which carries considerable more clout than uh, Brooklyn Borough President does. Yeah, there you go. I also think, I mean, Scott, I don't know if you want to take this opportunity to reminisce about the other recent uh, criminal uh, yes. charges brought <laughs> involving a potential Turkish interference in American politics. Rewind oh, the tape to our old friend Michael Flynn. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Middle East Mueller report is the best Lawfare it's so piece. wild. I really wish I'd written and never got around to it. And I still regret it. And sometimes I still think I could and it would be relevant because there was so much random Middle East stuff here's your, stuffed in there. Here's your hook, man. This is maybe the hook. That's exactly right. But yeah, I mean, remember, we uh, this is not unusual for the Turkish government. Like the Turkish government is sharp-elbowed in a lot of ways. Remember, the Turkish government is the same government that had several bodyguards of Erdogan beat up a bunch of protesters in Washington, D.C. Outside the Brookings Institution, yeah, outside the Brookings no Institution, less. Uh, I was not my time there, here, yeah. Exactly, but uh, not too long before my time here. Uh, that resulted in litigation uh, involving some very interesting uh, diplomatic community issues for those interested uh, in D.C. courts over many years. The guy pushes the legal envelope just as he pushes the political envelope. Erdogan is one of the most idiosyncratic and interesting global leaders in the world. And he is just known for being a little erratic, overplaying every hand he has dealt to the hilt and then some. And this is, I suspect, to some degree, an example of that, although frankly, like pretty small scale. Remember, he was paying Mike Flynn to try and kidnap uh, Fatullah Gulan, uh, a, a dissent uh, allegedly. Of the of allegedly. Uh, but that is what he alleged to have done in the Mueller report. So that's a much more, bigger act than this sort of thing, right? That said, I have to apologize to both of you because I'm about to throw some what I think is serious cold water on this story as it relates to Eric Sad. Adams. Fake news. I think for Eric Adams to be exposed to any meaningful legal liability of this, you'd have to have pretty open and shut quid pro quo exchange. 
I haven't gone back and exactly scrubbed and thought about like what would the criminal charges here be, but that's more or less the takeaway. Do you have something? Well, yeah. So actually, I wanted to speak to this because I was trying to figure this out as well. So it seems like there's, as I read it, there are a couple different avenues of legal exposure. One has to do with campaign finance violations because of uh, using what's called straw donors, so essentially a cutout to mask a foreign contribution. Then it does seem like there's a possibility of uh, corruption. Uh, so honest services fraud, uh, also uh, our, our good friend Bob Menendez has been hit with that one. And then it seems like maybe Farah as well, possibly or no? I, it possibly, I think. But but again, all this comes down to Adam's direct individual knowledge of the relationship between these funds, these organization and Erdogan and an understanding that these funds are coming from the Turkish government, right? Like to be Farah, you have to know you're the agent of a foreign government to have registration obligations. To have, commit campaign finance violations, you have to have reason to know to know or have reason to know. I don't, I don't know what the exact standard is. But if, if there's a negligence uh, violation there, you have to know or have reason to know that these funds were actually coming from a foreign government or other prohibited source, right? And you need a quid pro quo, so knowledge that you are doing something in exchange for getting this. The fact that they've taken Eric Adams' phone, to me, does not mean that they have that knowledge. It means they're looking into it, which would be a responsible thing to do, um, as with his campaign uh, finance person. This also doesn't strike me as the thing, though, that like necessarily says he did, because if he has relationships with a bunch of you know, Turkish citizens or Turkish residents and business owners and organizations that operate in New York, which is not surprising for him to do – there's policy reasons he could say, hey, let's do the Turkish government a favor and open this consulate early, not related to those donations, right? I mean, New York, remember, is a city of diplomats. So there's all sorts of relationships between national governments and the New York mayor's office and the city more generally. And you engage with them in lots of different ways that are very legitimate city business. I'm not sure that happened here. Like, this is a little skeezy. It strikes me as potentially a little skeezy, particularly because it's a fire hazard, um, which you don't want generally. Uh, we've seen a real rash of fires and random gas explosions in New York the last few years. Uh, we don't need more of those. So that doesn't mean it's good policy. But, you know, it's not the sort of thing that I think can only be explained by a, you know, direct line from Erdogan. Uh, and if it were, this would be kind of small potatoes <laughs> like, like uh, of Erdogan, like forcing a bunch of money to do an early opening of this sort of thing through these campaign donations. In my mind, it seems much more likely that, you know, Turkish government has relationship with a bunch of organizations, individuals who live in New York, who are from Turkey, have ties to Turkey. And they are people whose views are supposed to be represented through the city government and they're lobbying on his behalf and they happen to give money to Eric Adams. But without a closer nexus – it's not there. That could we could be wrong. Like maybe Eric Adams is texting Erdogan and saying, "Hey man, ten thousand dollars, throw it my way," which is the size of money we're talking about. Which is probably and then he a sends dubious. back a thumbs up emoji. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. the thumbs up emoji with a winky face, right? Like then we're there. Um, but until you get that sort of direct knowledge, I kind of suspect they're not looking into it. What they are interested in, I suspect, is looking for people who are, are doing this on behalf of the Turkish government without Eric Adams knowing about it. And so they're going to want the communications between those people and Eric Adams and his fundraiser because they will be relevant to the prosecution of those people. So there's a reason why, you know, they may want Eric Adams' phone even if he's not a target of the investigation, so to speak, even if they don't have reason to think he's engaged in criminal activity because that's going to be relevant to establishing those people as fair violators or campaign finance violators because they will have – they may be easier to show they have direct knowledge this money is actually coming from the Turkish government. And there's a conscious effort to kind of – Cracked down on this now since the 2016 election, a variety of regards, including ramping up far enforcement. I will say one of the things I wondered about in the reporting about the seizure of Adams's phones is that uh, the New York Times report is not that, you know, 
the FBI showed up, knocked on the door, asked to see the phone. Uh, mayor's office handed it over. It's that they, the agents uh, stopped Adams after an event, asked his security detail to step away, got into the SUV, and then took his devices away, which is pretty aggressive and and I don't know, but makes me wonder if there was some concern on the Bureau's part that if they just reached out saying, hey, can we take a look at this, that uh, shenanigans might have occurred. I, I totally believe that's a possible explanation. I also totally believe that FBI agents live in New York and have probably have skeptical views of Eric Adams and, <laughs> and might take an opportunity to uh, say, we don't know what this guy's going to do. Let's just do this in a way that but he's pro he cop. The card without having evidence. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's in exactly. the exactly it, it's in the gray area that I think that uh, I'm not sure I would read that as a sheer, clear sign. They're worried about something in a, a serious way as opposed to kind of a precautionary prophylactic way. It's well within FBI's like zone of discretion and particularly. Oh yeah, like, to be clear, yeah, yeah, the investigatory agents to take that sort of approach, as I understand it. So like, I just wouldn't read too much into that. But you're right. I mean, like, if you're putting all the different little facts we have on a scale, that is one that's on the side of the scale that says maybe Eric Adams is in trouble. But I think it's a very small piece. It's uh, the FBI. They what is it, Tyler? They they want a seat at the table of success. <laughs> exactly. Well, I have a few points. The first being. And I think the entire city of New York would agree with me in that, Scott, you are no fun, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> Confirmed. And, and second of all, to, to shift uh, away from, the, from legal exposure to, to kind of, I think, broader uh, national security questions, I think another thing this, this, uh, this story highlights, not only I think are, are some of the national security vulnerabilities um, that exist at the city and local level, not just in New York, uh, which is a major, you know, International city, but in, in smaller cities, I think the State Department uh, is is getting wise to some of these vulnerabilities. Earlier this year, they they I think they established um, a subnational diplomacy unit uh, within state for the first time ever, uh, m- mimicking other countries and sort of a recognition that that we're lagging behind in this area. You also saw, uh, I, I believe, the the State Department issued a notice two years ago saying that, that U.S.-based Chinese officials actually have to disclose their meetings with U.S. local governments. So I think there's just this growing recognition that there's a lot happening at the city and state level that the federal government would, would like to be more aware of. And then the, the last point I want to make, and this is, a bit, uh, this is a bit of conjecture, but I think if we think that Eric Adams has larger political aspirations, which I think is, is maybe safe to, to say. Um, he may be uh, sh- shooting himself in the foot here. Say he's you know he's he's not accused of any wrongdoing. He's not uh, you know convicted of any wrongdoing. There is a sort of pattern among international mayors that sort of the the more global ambitions a mayor has. Uh, the less political success they have domestically. So there's a few high-profile examples of this. Uh, Mayor Hidalgo in Paris, uh, she was she was known for establishing ties with foreign governments and creating personal ties with foreign mayors. She got destroyed in, in the in the French primaries when she sought higher office. Uh, similarly, a mayor of, of, of Buenos Aires established a global committee of mayors. He got crushed when he when he tried to uh, to to seek higher office. So. You know, Eric Adams, I think uh, sound political advice is to to get your house in order and, and focus on the issues at hand. I think there can be a perception when when mayors try to, you know, look beyond the borders of the country that they're detached from from the from local issues. Um, I think Eric Adams has bigger <laughs> problems than that as well. But um, it's an interesting, I think, pattern that, that you see often with global so-called global mayors. 
So our last topic, election interference, 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 interference. Stop me when I have too many interferences. I think, I think you got it. Okay, Maybe, okay. One more. Maybe one more for good measure. Interference. Thank you. NBC News recently reported that, quote, a, a once robust alliance of federal agencies, tech companies, election officials and researchers that work together to thwart foreign propaganda and disinformation has fragmented after years of sustained Republican attacks. They pointed to uh, a few specific cases, the most recent being that um, it seems that these regular uh, briefings by the FBI's Foreign Influence Task Force uh, with social media companies about Russian, Iranian and Chinese influence campaigns have ceased after a few uh, court cases, which we can get into. But NBC News also highlights a few other coordination efforts that have also ceased or or, or been significantly wound down after Republican attacks, uh, one being uh, activities by the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, which uh, has also halted outreach to Silicon Valley firms. And then another high-profile uh, example, I think that many of our listeners will be familiar with, was when... Last year, uh, DHS shut down its disinformation board after widespread harassment of, of, of the head of the board and other attacks. So, Quinta, I wanted to go to you first to walk us through some of the rulings that uh, have hamstrung these FBI briefing efforts and, and a bit of the background of those cases. So I think what's important to understand here is that uh, this is what we in the business call a, a chilling effect, legally speaking. Um, so there is Brr. exactly it is kind of cold in this room, actually. <laughs> um, there is ongoing litigation, which listeners may have heard about. I think we may even have discussed it before in national security. Initially, the case title was Missouri versus Biden. Now, I think it's Murthy. So that's the Surgeon General versus Missouri brought by a coalition of attorney generals in red states, uh, basically seeking to block government coordination, uh, if you like what it was, or jawboning, uh, if you don't like what it was, against social media platforms to take down content that the government didn't approve of. The question of what level of government pressure on social media platforms and what level of government coordination there should be is a really complicated one, as is the question of what the law allows. I think it's fair to say it's the law here is frankly unsettled and it is not wrong that there are legitimate concerns to be had about, uh, you know, the White House leaning on Facebook and saying we're going to pressure to take away your Section 230 immunity for third party content if you don't take down, you know, X, Y and Z content about COVID. That said, this lawsuit is not that <laughs> It, it it was an incredibly broad brush effort to basically halt a huge amount of coordination between the government and social media platforms, including on issues where, you know, you might potentially want the government to be coordinating with social media platforms um, if there is, you know, dangerous material out there. So the lawsuit has gone on a bit of an odyssey. Initially, there was an extremely broad injunction uh, by a district judge that basically prevented essentially all communication between the federal government and social media platforms that now uh, we've, we've had some back and forth uh, with the Fifth Circuit. And now the Supreme Court has agreed to hear the case and that injunction um, has itself been stayed by the court while they consider the case. So that injunction is no longer in effect. But I think what we're seeing here is the chilling effect, right? Now that you know, these legal concerns are on the table and it seems like, you know, judges are taking them seriously, are willing to, you know, 
hand down injunctions against them, that the government is a lot less gung ho about having these outreach efforts, Uh, which, again, you might think is great if you don't like those efforts. But I do think that this is an example of how it can be really concerning. We have seen since 2016 uh, really an increase in efforts to coordinate between the government and social media platforms on you know, to, to try to counter election disinformation, including uh, foreign interference. And what this article in NBC is describing is basically that the government doesn't want to do that anymore. And that's going to be a huge problem. And I think it's important to understand that, you know, this is this is a success for a sustained right wing effort to use legal and political pressure on social media companies, on arms of the government that do this kind of work, including, as you say, uh, CISA, on private researchers who coordinate with both the government and platforms to basically get these people to stop doing their work. It has taken the form not only of the Missouri versus Biden litigation, but also by uh, private litigation against some of those private researchers and by a blizzard of subpoenas sent out by Jim Jordan's Weaponization of Government Committee. And I find all of this really concerning. I worry that it means that we're going into 2024 with our hands tied behind our back at a time when the platforms have walked away from a lot of the investments that they'd made in trust and safety capabilities. And so I worry that 2024 is going to be kind of a zoo um, from the perspective of the information environment. I, I, I agree with all of that. Let me put, though, in context what I think is happening here and part of this reaction, because I actually think this is kind of an institutional moment perspective. So in – I forget it was in Ray's testimony or some of the coverage in FBI statement, but the sources informing this – I think it's a NBC report – said essentially that a big barrier is that all of the FBI's interactions with social media companies are subjecting to le- being subjected to Justice Department legal review. So they basically have to coordinate with lawyers before they go and do these sorts of things. First off, I will say as a former government agency lawyer, this is the sort of thing that policy people say when when they are angry at their lawyers and angry at the fact that they have to talk to their lawyers. They always blame the lawyers, even though often it may be as simple as the lawyer saying, yeah, just keep me in the loop, keep me copied, but makes them nervous to have lawyers involved. And so that has a chilling effect. That's unfortunate, but that is just a reality of government and frankly, like corporations and everybody else. Like nobody likes dealing with lawyers. Lawyers make people nervous. It may also speak to uh, tensions between the FBI and the Justice Department, which are very real and very present. Absolutely. Exactly the next thing I was going to say. That is also an additional layer of this complication. But in this case, we have to remind, this is a case where these issues are actively on appeal before the Supreme Court and subject to ongoing litigation. That is a case where the Justice Department is going to be super, super conservative and that you probably will have a high enough level buy-in that the litigation equities of the department are likely to outweigh, um, particularly, frankly, this far out from, out from 2024 uh, and this far from any other sort of like national election of note uh, other than the election we just had, which was just really relevant for Virginia and a few other <laughs> places that have off-year elections. Those equities are likely to outweigh, but that posture is likely to be somewhat temporary. Like, ideally, you're going to get the Supreme Court to rule on this. I don't know if the government has moved for expedited hearing. I don't think they have, actually. I don't think they have. I don't think so, Um, which is interesting in and of itself. Like, that might be reflective of the fact that they want to build their case and think about the way of approaching it. Um, That's kind of interesting in and of itself. Um, Because like Quinta noted, like in this complaint, or not the complaint, in the district court opinion that lays out all the complaints leveled, 
90% of it is kind of nonsense, but there's like 10%. You're like, oh man, hey, White House guy, you really shouldn't have done this. This was very stupid. And like, is it violate the First Amendment? There's an open question there, but it doesn't seem appropriate. It doesn't seem great, like where he's cussing out social media people and threatening to do things, right? So there's some like bad behavior in here. And that's a posture where the government's going to say, all right, well, now we have to draw a line and figure out strategically like what we concede, what we don't, how we draw, we do a line drawing exercise, how we think this fits with Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett all the new justices we have on board, it might be more amenable to this. You know, just KBJ, I don't think they're worried about, but who knows? Uh, you know, there's an issue where actually I, I could see her actually having some concerns because she takes First Amendment issues seriously. Um, again, around that 10% of like maybe less 5% of actual bad things. So hopefully this is a more temporary institutional posture. This is not the FBI saying, hey, we're not going to do this between now and 2024. It's more of them saying, hey, while this is actively awaiting litigation for the Supreme Court, we're going to have to be super conservative. And those equities will shift in time. Like as you get closer to the election, if the Supreme Court doesn't rule on this, as you get closer to like major incidents, the FBI will have more equity and credibility to push back against some of these restrictions. And it'll get elevated in DOJ and DOJ say will say maybe we'll take the litigation risk at this point. But that's the sort of calculus I think is behind this. Like I said, I don't think it's a it's a secular shift. I think it is a very context-specific posture that the Justice Department is assuming. I think that's, that is fair. What I would point to, though, is the rollback of CISA's efforts to coordinate with tech companies, which I think is really notable um, and is one of the major threads in this article because CISA's work was very prominent in 2020. I think it's an example of not jawboning or at least, you know, much more sort of careful, limited coordination with tech companies. The agency did a lot of sort of public outreach issues. And now it seems like it's rolling back at least some of that work. And I worry that that is because of the political climate. I mean, if, if listeners recall, uh, Chris Krebs, who was the head of CISA under Trump, was fired for saying, uh, fired by Trump for saying publicly that the 2020 election had been secure. And so I I think that in every individual instance, there are understandable institutional equities at play here that may be leading to this pullback. But I do worry that in the if you zoom out a little, the broader picture is concerning in terms of what it means for the readiness of the government to make sure that everyone has good information around the election. Yeah, I I, I guess I wanted to sort of zoom out and and describe just how frustrating it is to to read this. Because I, I think if you look at countries who are known to be strong in this area, area being combating election interference from abroad, everything that it seems that Republicans are attacking or, or attempting to dis- dismantle are best practices from those countries that they're, they're pointing to. So, so a few years ago, I worked on, on two case studies, one in, in Sweden, one in Estonia, about combating election uh, disinformation. And we highlighted those countries because they were they were fairly good at it. Um, and they both use this sort of buzzword of a whole of society approach. Uh, and you know whether or not they actually embodied this whole of society approach, I think the deployment of that term is at least a recognition that uh, this is a cross-cutting issue, cutting across government and industry and civil society. And to sever or to silo, um, you know, those elements, once again, I think is is such a, you know, a reversal. It's several steps back, uh, or it's, it's a backing away of, of best practices. One of the few best practices or strategies that um, people who study this know to be effective in combating uh, a disinformation. So I also sort of, uh, and Quentin Scott, feel free to push back if this is not a, a really apt analogy, but 
to me, I was also getting echoes of the Eric saga earlier this year, the the Electronic Registration Information Center, um, which is uh, my understanding is sort of a, sh- a shared function between states that a lot of Republican states have opted out of. Uh, and then after opting out of that, out of it, uh, they realized just how essential of a function it was and have since scrambled to sort of put back together an ersatz version of it. So I'm it, it's very frustrating to to see these things, the few kind of election integrity strategies we know to work, be directly attacked and, and dismantled, only to be then reinstituted in, in, a, in a much weaker version. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, and the irony of the Eric situation is that the whole point of Eric was to make sure that states can cross-reference election registration with each other so that you can't vote in two states at once, which, if you take uh, right-wing concerns about voter fraud seriously, is exactly what they're trying to avoid in the first place, uh, which I think just shows how disconnected from reality this whole thing is. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of our time for conversation today, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over In the week to come, Quinta, what do you have for us this week? So I believe I recommended some fiction last week, and I'm going to do it again because I'm on a a tear. There's a semi-new novel out by Lauren Groff, who I think is a sort of has has obtained a, a wide degree of, of recognition for her for her work. Um, she wrote Fates and Furies, which is also excellent. Um, the Vaster Wilds is about a servant girl who escapes the plague-ridden settlement in Jamestown in the 1600s and runs out into the woods. It's a pretty short novel. It's a relatively quick read. And I think I was just very impressed by Groff's ability to kind of keep a story moving that involves basically one character and nobody talking Um, and somehow manages to make this character's journey through the wilderness really gripping and engaging, even though it's almost entirely within her own head. I'm not totally sure that it stuck the landing, um, but it was a very enjoyable and thought provoking read. All right. Uh, This has been on my list, actually, to take a look at. So I'm intrigued by it. Uh, Tyler, what do you have for us this week? I am going to fall victim to recency bias and uh, advocate for a documentary I watched last night, <laughs> which uh, I've been Love thinking about it. all day, which is the recent HBO Max Max HBO documentary, Albert Brooks, Defending My Life. I, I'm familiar with Albert Brooks and some of his work, but I, I don't get the same sense that a lot of people in my millennial generation and then certainly not younger have have as much of a name recognition. And, and I think he looms so large uh, in comedy I mean, his his fingerprint is on SNL. It's on, you know, so much of, of what comedy is today in terms of alternative comedy becoming the mainstream and sort of like conceptual comedy. Uh, and I didn't realize. It's also really crazy that he was in this high school drama class with Rob Reiner, Richard Dreyfuss. Um, the, the, the movie is, is, is he's being interviewed by Rob Reiner, um, who's a, a lifelong friend. It's it's fantastic. It's really good. I really want to check this out. I feel like these retrospectives, I'm not a movie star person. I really do not watch a lot of movies or TV and don't follow celebrity things at all. But I watched Val, the Val Kilmer documentary, which I thought was amazing. I think I recommended on Ratsack before. And this one also caught my eye. It looks so interesting. And it's like these periods where we can look back on these artists and their evolution and the crazy background. Because it turns out like it's like just farm teams of like all these celebrities when they're 20-somethings out there acting in Massachusetts where like – Gwyneth Paltrow and the late Matthew Perry made out in a field, evidently, I think Gwyneth Paltrow revealed, right, right, after as, as part of a, a memoriam to him. Uh, so it's just, it's fascinating. It, it's interesting. I'm looking forward to that. 
Well, for my object lesson, uh, I am bringing a very fun, if somewhat depressing book that's worth checking out that I got recently called A City on Mars by Kelly and Zach Weinersmith. This is a book which has, it's like kind of graphic. It's not graphic novelty. It has a lot of illustrations in it because one, it's a married couple, one of whom is a scientist of some sort, the other of whom is an illustrated as a cartoonist. Um, but they do these kind of interesting, uh, deep research books they write over several years using on science e-topics. And this one is all about space colonization, a topic that is very close to my heart and that I'm a giant nerd about and space travel. Um, And it is one of the more detailed and readable and fun dives into all the huge obstacles and weird questions raised by the idea of sending human beings into outer space to live there or do substantial activities there, which is something that's very much in the zeitgeist and of live policy discussion topic between the United States and China and other states right now um, as we enter a new era of the space race. I think they are perhaps overly skeptical of certain points and uh, perhaps a little generous to uh, international law uh, in certain regards, which is an ironic thing for me to be saying, uh, and its ability to promote stability uh, and deter bad behavior in these sorts of domains. But it's a fascinating read. I think a, a great thing that pulls together a lot of science, a lot of law, a lot of politics, a lot of history in a very digestible way. And I can't recommend it enough. I've really enjoyed plowing through it in the last 72 hours hours or so. Uh, and I'm about three quarters of the way through. So I don't know about the last quarter. Maybe maybe it really drops off, but we'll find out. Don't hold me to account if it does. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. So be sure to visit us at lawfaremedia.org. Visit our show page with links to past episodes. Visit there for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and find information there on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. While you're at it, be sure to follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Oh, excuse me, on X at RATL Security. And be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. And sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. For details, visit lawfaremedia.org support. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. And our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quinta, and our special guest, Tyler McBride, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.